Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Uh, it was about like 9.30, I guess that's when the call started. Um, then I guess about, I didn't answer the phone until the last time she called, which was, I think it was like 9.51 or something to that. It was towards the, almost close to 10 o'clock by that time. Um, and then that's when I get the phone call from her and I actually had a chance to speak with her. And I'm waking up out of a sleep, and she's just saying, babe, listen. And I'm like, I'm listening. And she said, my plane has been hijacked. And I just, I said, stop playing, you know, because I'm just waking up. you thinking that it's, she, you know, but she ain't never, she said, I've never played with you like that. She said, listen to me. I need, and I heard the, the fear in her voice. I heard the, the, the fear. I heard the desperation in her voice to get out what she had to say. And she said, um, my plane has been hijacked. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, all I know is just I love you. She said, I love you. Tell my boys I love them. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to see you guys again. And I'm like, at this point, my heart is like beating. I'm like, am I dreaming? Am I am I sleeping? You know, I didn't know whether I was still dreaming or what. I didn't know whether it was real or what. So, but I'm listening. So at that point, I stopped. I said, okay, well, let's pray. So we prayed. And then um, she said, she told me that, she said, well, you know, um, we're getting ready to go uh, to the cockpit. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what she's saying. And I hear people in the background uh, screaming, and I hear some bamming. And uh, she said, okay, it's getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to happen. And then we got disconnected. And then that was the last time I, I spoke to her. Then I, once the phone got disconnected, then I sat up in the bed because I did all this laying down. I sat up in the bed like, it was like I just woke up. I'm like, did, was that a real call? So I looked at the caller ID and noticed that it was a call and it was from her cell phone. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. How, how can she call me from on the plane?
I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were all back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this flight. One of my first questions I asked the guy. guys welcome back to conspiranormal it's your host adam sane and your co-host lukey that's right producer rob in the house as well and we have on the line rebecca roth who is the author of the books methodical illusion and methodical deception about 9-11 and we also have a special guest co-host with us tonight as well the great dr future welcome guys well, well I was yeah. I'm sorry, Rick. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Rebecca. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, and guys, thank you for having me. I, I know I'm supposed to be the uh the I guess the regular uh conspiracy theory laureate here or something like that. Yeah. Or the the village idiot uh, of it. <laughs> but uh thank you for sitting and let me learn something from a real guest this time. So I'm anxious to learn from her. So I'm going to try to be quiet and just sit and learn. There you go. There you go. When, when Adam told me we were having a surprise co- uh, co-host, I was hoping for John Cena. but Yeah, you know, he was hoping for John I, Cena. I guess he'll but... do. I'm just kidding, Mike. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to let you down. I'm, I'm used to letting people down. That's one of my gifts. <laughs> you know we love you. Well, let's, Disappointing. Let's, uh, let's get into it, Rebecca. I want to talk. You were someone that I, I, I heard you on Canary Cry Radio back in April on a long trip, uh, actually two-hour trip to where I'm from in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I listened to basically the entire interview for the two hours. And I can tell you that as someone that has studied 9-11, and then I kind of got bored with the whole study of it. I didn't really think that there was anything else that you could really learn about it. I thought that a lot of it had been covered. But I felt that you had such an interesting perspective that it really just, well, to be honest, it just really blew my mind. So thank you for coming on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, I really want everyone to understand kind of like where you come from, what your professional background is, because that, that is going to be important in understanding where you're, where you're coming from as you look at, the, at 9-11. Well, okay, let me just give you a quen- uh, just a quick brief history. Um, at the time of 9-11, I had been a, a flight attendant and a purser, which is the flight attendant in charge. Okay. Um, I flew mostly international, but occasionally domestic, um, for almost 30 years at that time. And I uh, flew until 2004. 
And I was luckily home for the event. I had just gotten home from Europe. So I could have been on one of those four planes very, very easily. I missed wow. that whole event wow. by about 10 hours. So uh, I couldn't believe what was happening. When What happened to me is I got a phone call, and, and uh, the voice on the call said, turn on your television. And I did just in time to see what appeared to be a 767 slide into the World Trade Center tower like a hot knife through butter. And I actually thought, now I was <laughs> kind of half awake and half asleep, um, Lots of jet lag on board, but I really thought that it was a new rendition of the War of the Worlds or a very poorly done rendition updated to using airplanes, something very fake. Okay. Because okay. a part of my training in the airline uh, is that we study crashes. So I've seen airplanes crash into uh, buildings, mountains, water, you name it, everything, and that's not what they do. And so every airline person that has contacted me uh, since my first book, Methodical Illusion, came out a little over a year ago, um, has asked me, have I figured out how they made that plane look like it did that? Because what would happen in real life is they, um, the aircraft would hit the building and literally explode on the outside, and everything would fall down. And it's that's a big aircraft. The 767 is a double aisle a large airplane, a very large. It's considered a jumbo jet. So, uh, you know, when anytime you get in an aisle, the, a two-aisle aircraft, it's a pretty big uh, machine. And so to see that, I mean, airline people just can't make it work, even though at the time of 9-11, I thought, well, that's weird. I, but I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So as I as I watched it unfold, I was hearing things, and I started to hear things that were just even crazier and even more impossible. Um, one of those was cell phone calls being made by crew members and passengers. And I'm here to tell you, even, even I get email every day from people that said, oh, I just flew to, you know, Cincinnati and my phone didn't work up there. Uh, cell phones absolutely did not work at any altitude above about 1800 feet. Okay. I mean, you okay. might be able to get a call a short, very short, you know, a few seconds at around 2,000 feet. But other than that, if you were leaving a certain city with lots of cell towers, but other than that, impossible. Another thing I saw was that flight attendants were calling places that made no sense. The first lady that called in, Betty Ong from Flight 11, the very first plane to be hijacked, uh, called a reservations line and we're no different than you as a passenger if I called a reservation line I would expect to be on hold 10 15 20 minutes or longer you would never call we have a phone number that we can call uh, every airline every flight attendant has this every pilot knows this number by heart that we would call to notify them if you could make a call using an air phone or something that did work uh, and you would call immediately to the company. You would never, ever, ever call a spouse or your parents or reservations or someone else that wasn't uh, equipped to handle and help you because that's why you'd be making a call. And so when I started to see these irregularities, I, I was like, well, but here's what happened. I was still doing this as a living. <laughs> and so until 2004 when I um, retired myself from flying, I honestly couldn't look. We were never uh, 
we were never allowed to really discuss it in our in our yearly training. Every flight attendant has to recertify every year, and we take a like a day and a half, a two day training period. Uh, every airline's a little bit different on that. We have a workbook for um, you know six to eight hours of of work that you'd have to do, like take home homework. And then we'd go to um, every other year. It'd be a little bit different, but we'd go to um, where we have uh, mock-up aircraft, like uh, simulators, and we would practice getting out of a smoke-filled cabin and ditching and opening the raft and getting in swimming pools and all of those things um, every year. And then a part of that, we study hijacking protocol. Hijacking protocol at the time of 9-11 was called the Common Strategy. It was put together by the FAA. It had not changed since the early 1970s. Has it changed since? Uh, it has. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's different now. And so we had code words we would use, and, and uh, none of those things were followed by the pilots or the flight attendants on that day. Well, I never really looked back at this until I started to write a novel and it had nothing to do with 9-11. I just didn't have any interest to go back and look at that. Uh, in 2008 or nine, somewhere in there, I was starting to write this novel, and I got about three chapters into it, and I wanted to bring in a Middle Eastern uh, character to uh, interact with this uh, woman character. Actually, those are the first few chapters of Methodical Illusion. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, well, I'll just Google search those 19 Arab hijackers on 9-11. And that's what I put in my Google search window. And up in front of me came a BBC article dated September 23, 2001, claiming that at least six of the hijackers were still alive. The Saudi government was very unhappy. And even there was talk of a lawsuit against the FBI for stealing their identity. Then I found that the head of the FBI had actually admitted that some of these people might not have been real. They might have been stolen identity. And then I remembered, uh, gee, 95, 96, somewhere in there, there was an Interpol uh, through the FAA, an Interpol and that's the uh, like international police around Europe and stuff, uh, a bulletin to all flight crews that um, someone, some gang of people were uh, going in and stealing our identification. So we were reminded to not leave without our airline hmm. ID and passports and that sort of thing. And coincidentally, that's when some of the uh, hijackers that are still alive lost their identity in uh, Denver, Colorado, and a couple other cities inside the United States. So. Now, were these were the hijackers the, the, the people that were they stole the identity from? Were they uh, were they airline employees, or were they they just random people? Uh, no, they were. Um the one, well, that's interesting. One of the uh, gentlemen that is still going down in history as a 19, one of the 19 hijackers of 9-11, um, he had never been to the United States. He was accused of being on uh, Flight 93 that went into Shanksville, supposedly, and he had never left the country. And he's an engineer uh, that works outside of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the other one, uh, Walid Al-Shari, uh, he is a pilot still to this day for... I can't remember if it's Air Tunisia or Moroccan Air <laughs> subsidiary. Right. He's, he's a Saudi pilot. And uh, that was the one thing that really shook me up. I was like, oh, my goodness. I, th- three of those guys, I believe, are professional airline pilots. And I thought, you know, we go through customs and immigrations just like everyone else. And I thought, well, how hard would that make your job to go down and, 
in history, and that's your ID, that they had actually stolen their ID and the FBI, and still, if you look on Wikipedia, you'll see his picture, they'd up posted their home addresses. He was in Morocco at the time of 9-11, and um, I, I just, I, my, my mind just thought, I, how hard would it be to go through immigrations and customs for the rest of your career being tagged as that in the United States government not changing their story? Uh, but it's interesting. I found something else that was really interesting. In the very beginning, and not many people know this. I found a lot of things not, not many people know. But um, one of the things that happened is the FBI immediately came out and told us about these 19 Arabs. They had that number. But right. the, of that 19, there were four others that have disappeared into the annals of history. Three of them were still alive. Two of them had the same last name, and they were brothers, I believe. And the FBI had uh, t made up one of the stories about one of the rental cars at an airport with them. And I don't recall what it was they did for work, but one of them was an FAA employee. He was a flight instructor down in Florida. And the other person that they claimed was on the passenger manifest. That's what they said. On the, Their names were on the passenger manifest. And this happened in that first 72 hours. And then this guy shows up alive. And, of course, he's a flight instructor, FAA employee. And he said, no, I'm not dead. But the other guy who had his same last name, it was Bukhari. And uh, the other guy, the other Bukhari, both of these sets had the same names, but the Bukharis were not related. But the other guy had been killed in a small plane, like a Cessna accident, one year Exactly. September 11th, 2000, Whoa. one year earlier. So he was dead. He wasn't on the manifest. The FAA employee wasn't, wasn't on the manifest because you can't get on the manifest without being on the airplane. Right. And so when I saw that the FBI did that, I thought, wow, I thought I was watching that real close because I was glued to my TV. <laughs> this was my world. And I, I missed that. But I think a lot of us did because the Middle Eastern names are so different. And, yeah, it would have just, just been in the background, you know, it yeah. wouldn't have mattered to most people. Yeah, and it was interesting, too, that they picked the number 19. Uh, I don't know why they chose that number, but they didn't want to change that, uh, even though these guys showed up alive and one, one ended up being dead. And the, I believe the flight instructor, because he shared the last name, I don't know if they were cousins or, or it was just coincidental. He could have been his flight instructor, for all I know, because the plane crash was in Florida. So that, that's how that all came out to surface. And so when I thought, wow, this is really interesting. You've got people that supposedly did this that are still alive. I found 10 of them are still alive. And we have intelligence agency people saying, well, the other nine could possibly have been just completely fictional. Hmm. <laughs> that's why so little is known about them. Are you familiar with the work of uh, Daniel Hopsicker uh, in his work in investigative reporting in Florida? where he looked into Muhammad Atta, well, the supposed Muhammad Atta and some of his connections down there. And what it really kind of looked like was that Atta was probably running drugs for somebody. Yeah, it's interesting. Muhammad Atta was an Egyptian. Yeah. And he was the only Egyptian supposedly involved. But here's an interesting, I do know of, of his research. He did the the Venice Flying Circus or right, something? Right, right, Venice Flying yeah. Circus, yeah. yes. And, <laughs> well, just so you know, and you probably don't know this, but um, Mohammed Atta was a an executive platinum million-mile passenger on American Airlines for two to three years prior to 9-11. Huh. 
Wow. And I heard that from someone who flew for American Airlines for about a, about a 30-year career, about like myself, who read Methodical Illusion, contacted me on email and said, I was with American, I got to talk to you. And so I called her and, and that was the first thing she told me. She was stuck in Tokyo and at the hotel they stay at in uh, Narita, which is the little town where the airport is there in Tokyo. Uh, they shared that hotel with the United Flight Crew, too. So when 9-11 happened, they all, of course, canceled. Their flights all canceled. They couldn't come into the United States because all the uh, flights were canceled for a few days there. And then uh, they, every day they got a briefing. She said, I don't even remember what day it was in America or what even day it was in Tokyo. But when they came in and told us the ringleader of this whole ordeal was a guy named Mohammed Atta, Every senior flight attendant at American Airlines knew him because when you're a million-mile passenger, you get free upgrades and uh, from business to first class or coach to business or coach to first class. Right. You also Makes get sense. something else that people don't really know about. You get a luggage tag that guarantees your luggage will go on the plane with you. No matter, even if you have a short connection, like the official story was that Mohammed Atta had like a 15-minute connection at Logan to get on that flight, which is crazy. Who would plan such a thing and have this little 15-minute connection? So his luggage conveniently didn't make it on board. But if he really were, if it were him and he really were a million-mile passenger, there would be a a brass tag or some special tag that every airline employee knows, and that that guy, the baggage handler, that would have brought that to the plane and saw, oh, the luggage hold is closed, he would have brought it right up the jetway stairs to the flight attendant and said, get this on the airplane. This belongs to Mr. Atta. And this would have been the suitcase that probably With had the extremist <laughs> literature and the Korans <laughs> and, and the plans and, the, and, and everything. <laughs> All that crazy stuff. And right. all of that story that was originally given to Mohammed Atta, according to the FBI, was given to the Bukharis, I believe, in the rental car that was left at Logan. So it's, it, <laughs> it's really interesting. And I, one of the first things I started to see when I dug into this, because, uh, listen, when, my, when I found those hijackers who are still alive, I put that, mo that novel aside and I thought, uh-oh. Uh-oh, something real bad happened here, and I'm going to go find out what it was. And so at that point, I started to gather information. One of the things I found is most everything on YouTube is very suspect. A lot of things have been changed. There were very few people that actually had their phone calls recorded or had left messages on their recordings. And those you have to really be careful with as well, uh, especially if they go onto YouTube, because there's a lot of um, trolls that were working on the side of the perpetrators that have infiltrated social media and including YouTube. So I had to go through and find real documents. And then after my first book came out, I was privilege to uh, get a terabyte of Freedom of Information Act data. So I have everything the FBI wrote down from the day one and a lot, every tape recording, a terabyte of information is a lot of information. Well, I want to get back to that, but I want to talk about some of the, the phone calls themselves and some of the things that were said that just to you that just do not make any sense to you. I, I can think of one personally that even before I heard the C.C. Lyles tape, which is interesting, but the one that I always thought was strange was the Mark Bingham uh, 
saying, hi, mom, it's Mark Bingham. I always thought that was exceedingly weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. The Mark Bingham's mother was a flight attendant. I believe she flew for uh, United uh, at one point. I think she was retired um, by the time 9-11 came around. But uh, interestingly enough, well, let, let me take some of these phone calls uh, right from the start and I'm um, just kind of go down and talk about this because this is how it happened to me. And uh, I think that this is really helpful for people. The very first person to call out was a lady named Betty Ong. She'd flown right. for about 12 years, uh, maybe 13. As she was, I talked to lots of her coworkers since my first book came out. And uh, she was very much by the book, which means she would have followed the uh, FAA protocol at the time of 9-11 was called the common strategy. And basically, the common strategy was delay, delay, delay the hijacker from getting into the cockpit. And so we had ways to do that. And we had methodologies to use uh, to let the pilots know that there was actually a hijacker in the cabin. Because, you know, that cockpit door, they can't see what's going on. People could be running up and down the aisles naked. They wouldn't know unless we picked up the phone and told them. We are their eyes and their ears. So right. that communication between the cabin and the cockpit is very vital. We had step-by-step -step protocol that we would follow if there were a hijacker in the cabin, how we would let the pilots know, and code words to use. And here is an example of that. I would call if the hijacker came to me and said, you know, I want to take the plane to Havana or whatever, uh, whatever his demand was. Um, wanted maybe into the cockpit in this case I would call the cockpit using the interphone and I would say Captain Johnson sir this is Mrs. Rebecca Roth and I am being methodical we're having a horrible trip those words right there would have told him we have a hijacker he's at me and he wants in the cockpit squawk the hijack code and start the procedure Okay. None of that was done. And so when I started to look into the FA, I got the FBI documents and the transcripts. So when I heard Betty on call, she one called reservations, which is not a, a place you would call. And every American flight attendant that's contacted me has told me that was crazy to them, too. She called in reservations. The reservations person was very confused because that's not something we would do as flight attendants, just call them. So she thought she was a passenger, caused added confusion, right? But Betty Ong said, he, as in one hijacker, has sprayed pepper sprayer mason business class and we can't breathe up there. And I'm here to tell you right here and now <laughs> that if you spray pepper spray mace or even cheap perfume in business class in three minutes or less, it is in the air for every person on that plane, including the pilots, the hijacker, and the flight attendants, and every passenger. Because it has nowhere else to go because you're in a pressurized environment. In a pressurized cabin, and that's when I went, uh-oh. And I literally, when I saw that, I, I got chills up my spine. I thought, oh, no. And then she said something else. She said, he stood upstairs. And I thought, there are no stairs in a 767. That's a double aisle, wide body aircraft, one level. Only the 747 has stairs. But I'd been in many, many hangars over my 30-year career. And I knew that all hangars have stairs, and they're usually located in the corners of the buildings. And up above are office spaces. 
And then when she said he stood upstairs and I put that together, I thought, oh, my God, they're in a, they're in a hangar somewhere 20 minutes from Boston because that's when these phone calls started. Okay. So that's kind of what happened to me when I, I did that. And you know, there was a lot of things that, that she said and did that didn't make sense. But the most important thing she should have said, one, she should have called crew scheduling or a, a number that could contact the security personnel and FAA immediately. She didn't do that. And two, the very most important thing every flight attendant on 9-11 should have said, and no one did, was how anyone got into the cockpit because that's what we would have fixed. And that's how the FAA learn, uh, learned by their mistakes, so to speak, and that would have been remedied by uh, new commands or new doors or something, but no one ever said that. The pilots also never followed hijacking protocol. So when I put those things together, I thought, uh-oh, this is not a hijacking. And then Betty on God love her, she said one more thing that I knew then what had happened. She said, we can't communicate with the pilots. They're not answering their phone. So the pilots didn't know anything what was going on in the cabin because we're their eyes and ears, right? But when she said that, I remembered in the early 90s that a company had sold to Boeing aircraft a, a device, and this actually started with DARPA, called uh, Operation Home Run. And it was a remote control device made by a company called SPC Corporation. And SPC Corporation, interestingly enough, the CEO was a Rabbi Dov Zakheim. And Rabbi Dov Zakheim was also the comptroller or the banker of the United States Pentagon that Donald Rumsfeld had told us about the day before 9-11 that had misplaced $2.3 trillion, that's with a T, Dollars and was under investigation by two offices that um, were inside the Pentagon, both of which were uh, blown to smithereens, the Office of Naval Intelligence and way down the hall, the Army Auditors. They're it's, not even it's just $2.3 trillion. I mean, this, it's chunk so, change. <laughs> so the good rabbi, he uh, takes this uh, remote control device. It's called the Flight Termination System, FTS. And sold it to Boeing. Boeing turned around and sold it to some uh, commercial carriers in the United States. And listen carefully to this. In the event of a hijacking, and the hijacker should take over the cockpit, we can land the aircraft remotely. Mm. And when we were hearing that this was coming, and our, the airline I work for, <laughs> uh, we were talking about it with the pilots, and here's their problem. Once the flight termination took over, it used the same frequency as the um, transponder, which tells the air traffic controllers who you are, where you are, what altitude and speed you're at. If that tells you you're American Flight 11, you're a 767, and you're at 35,000 feet, and how fast you're going. And once the flight termination system takes over, you, lo you lose, they lose you off radar. So nobody knows where you're at. And you lost all communication with the cabin. And when Betty Ong said, the pilots aren't answering their phone, we can't communicate with the pilots, I went, oh, my God, the flight termination system. American Airlines, by the way, called theirs the flight interruption system. Okay. And I knew they'd been taken and they, that's why they didn't know, and that's there was no hijacker in the cockpit. That's why the pilots didn't squawk 7,500. They thought they were having a mechanical. And so Flight 11, actually, I now have the radar 
um, was actually taken over about nine minutes after eight, when it left around eight o'clock, about one minute to eight. Um, so about 10 minutes into their flight, it was taken over and it was landed at a, a, a reserve Air Force base. It was a, a base called uh, Westover Air Force Base. It's about 80 miles due west of Boston. It has an 11,595-foot runway, which was plenty of runway for those wide-body heavy jets because they were loaded with fuel, light passenger loads, but loaded with fuel uh, still. So you'd want to make sure they had plenty of runway, uh, you know, at least 10,000 feet or more. So that gave them plenty of runway. Also, uh, once my first book came out, I got contacted by some people that were based there, and it was a reserve base. It had some civilian workers and some military people that were based there. They always worked there, but it was only basically work used on the weekends, usually, or occasionally a flight would come in uh, from England or another base or something in there to offload some stuff because it was a cargo uh, logistics base. They got real active after 9-11. Hmm. But they had been evacuated, and when the reservists were called shortly after the second plane hit, and they showed up at the gate, they were denied entrance. They were activated as a reserve unit. Boom, you are now active. Show up at the base. They get there, and they are told, you're going to such and such a hotel. You can't get on the base. The base would, has been evacuated. And by it's procedure, off. they should have been able to get into the base because that's their base. Exactly. Right. And they were activated to duty to their base. And when this woman who uh, contacted me heard an interview, and I, I, when I first did interviews, I didn't talk about the base, but now I've got eyewitnesses from uh, Western Massachusetts. Uh, I just talked to one yesterday, another one. And so we have a lot of people now that saw these planes landing, but it didn't fit the scenario they were being shown on television. And so they said, well, that, that can't be the airplane I saw, but it was way too low. One lady sure. told me she was sure that when the airplane she saw, she, she saw United 175 uh, on its way to land at Westover. And she was certain it was going to crash. And she thought she was the last human to see this plane full of people before it crashed. And she was traumatized for 14 years and until she read Methodical Illusion. She called me. She goes, you have just vindicated the last 14 years of my life. I thought I was going crazy and everyone thought I was because I saw a United plane so close she could see people in the window. Now, there's there's some interesting things with, I believe, the sheriff of the town and there's a link to... Was it the FAA? Uh, I believe that. Yeah, let me. Uh, sorry, I'm <laughs> taking some sips of water here. Sure. Well, let me tell you about that. So, um, well, interesting thing uh, that I discovered too in my search is that Tom Thomas Keene, he was the um, chairman of the 9/11 Commission, and Lee Hamilton together in 2006 they wrote a novel, or not a novel, a book about um, the whole 9/11 uh, Commission hearings. And inside there, they said. Basically, that the Pentagon and the FAA had given them so many, quote unquote, misstatements that they were considering an investigation into those two government bodies. Well, okay. that got my attention. <laughs> the FAA and the Pentagon were lying to the 9-11 Commission? Okay. So um, I started to look at those. And it's interesting, Jane Garvey, who was the head of the FAA at the time, she used to be the director of Boston Logan. 
And so Jane Garvey, every single year for Boston to get their operator's license to work as a commercial air airport, has to prove to Jane Garvey, the administrator of the FAA, that they have a security and they have security in, in place. So Jane Garvey and also the young lady who was the, uh, her name was Virginia Buckingham, who was the director of Boston Logan, both knew there were no security cameras whatsoever in Boston Logan Airport. None. Zero. Nada. And so how convenient would that be? Because now we see we don't know who was on those planes. Could have been Mohammed Atta. It could have been somebody that looked like him. Could have been Mossad agents. We don't yeah. know who they were. We I don't know any the, of the passengers. I think the footage that was released of Mohammed Atta was actually from the uh, airport in Maine, wasn't it? From Portland. Yeah, and it has two time and date stamps on it that are both yeah. off different. So that's not... I, I don't know what that is. It's it's not straight security stuff. And you can't tell. It's so grainy. You cannot tell who that is. So, right. And you don't know where he went after Portland. <laughs> he could have just gone to Boston. Uh, so yeah, it's very suspicious. So I started to look at the F FAA and the for the second book, and also for uh, some of the people involved in the Pentagon that, to, quite frankly, as a flight attendant, they should have lost their jobs. And they didn't, including Jane Garvey. Um, but I started to look into these people, and lo and behold, Jane Garvey's husband is the sheriff that is uh, the north and the northwest county that surrounds. Westover is huge. It's high, first or second largest in area space on uh, ground. Uh, of any base in the United States. It's huge. And so he is a sheriff in his uh, county goes to the west, northwest, above the whole north section, uh, which is where Flight 11 came in. And then the other planes I'm finding out now kind of came in and went right through his county. And so if someone like the lady that contacted me that was an eyewitness and this people I talked to yesterday... Uh, that saw, uh, now I've got two different airplanes coming in from people in western Massachusetts. Uh, they would have called the sheriff. They could have been silenced. I mean, they could have, their <laughs> their report could have just not been followed up on. They could have been silenced. There's no way we would know um, what could have happened to them. But coincidentally, the head of the FAA now, since uh, Thomas Keene thought the FAA was hiding something, I thought I should look at that a little bit. But I thought the uh, coincidence was really interesting. Here's another interesting coincidence. Vir uh, Virginia Buckingham, who was the director at Boston Logan, her husband is a guy named David Lowey. And Lowey is the same last name of uh, Larry Silverstein's partner in the World Trade Center's. Just coincidentally, they're both the same last name. But they're not related? Not that I found. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you, he used to spend his summers in Israel in kibitzes. <laughs> do you There's think, a lot of connections to Israel here. Yeah, that's what I think we're getting uh, to that point. But uh, do you think that all four of the planes were actually taken there? Yes, they were. And okay. how I found that is... Um, by the phone calls, because the phone calls all had to have been made on the ground while right. the people were on the ground. The people that called in on Flight 93, a lot of them were cell calls. And before I forget, Todd Beamer, let's roll. Todd yeah. Beamer had just been in Israel two weeks before this as well. 
Another interesting connection, but Todd Beamer has a magical cell phone that survived when a titanium engine couldn't and the landing gear couldn't. In Shanksville, the only thing that survived apparently was Todd Beamer's cell phone because it kept making phone calls to New Jersey huh. until nearly 9 o'clock that night. And that was brought into the Zachariah Masawi trial. Uh-huh. I think it might have been brought into the 9-11 hearings as well. No explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they find some passports on the ground in Shanksville as well? Uh, they found one from from the hijacker, one of the hijackers right. only. That's very convenient. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it, you start to see this now that we all are beginning to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We can yeah. see the same stuff being played out, Charlie Hebdo and all of this stuff. Another thing that I'm finding just really fascinating to me, and this just happened in the San Bernardino is that according to the 9-11 official story, there was a gentleman. Now, this is interesting, too, because both flight attendants referred to a hijacker as one single he. And originally, Amy Sweeney, the second flight attendant to call in from Flight 11, said that he, the hijacker, was seated in 9B. And later on, she called back because she lost her connection, and she called back to her supervisor in Boston and said, oh, I, I made a mistake. And that's a mistake a flight attendant would never, ever, ever make because the chances of you making a phone call are slim to nothing. The chance of you making two phone calls are even less than that. And you would never, ever point the finger to someone because the name of the game in a hijacking is for us to get you on the ground. And when we do, the airplane will be liberated by a hostage rescue force. Now, hostage rescue people are really interesting. They're like Navy SEALs and FBI. And these people are trained on how everything on the airplane works like the PA system, the doors, if the doors are armed with chutes or not, stuff like that. So as I thought, well, that's interesting that she would do that. And then I started to look into this 9B. And lo and behold, 9B, he was an Israeli that had grown up in Denver, Colorado. And interestingly enough, he was back in the United States right when these passports from Walid al-Shari and some others that lost their passports in Denver, Colorado, coincidentally. Hmm. And so he was a trained assassin with a special unit called the Sayeret Matkal. It's an Israeli defense Mossad. These are highly trained assassins. And just so you know, Bibi Netanyahu is one also. And Ehud Barak also was Sayeret Matkal. Trained assassin, he was an anti-hijacking specialist, and he also was a hostage rescue specialist. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, what are the chances that these uh, 20-year-old hijackers that were five foot six, on their way to take over the cockpit, would just happen to cut this guy up with a plastic box cutter? Right. And now that, uh, Daniel Lewin, by the by chance, was. Um, fluent in English, of course, Hebrew, and Arabic. So if he was, they were sitting in the row behind him planning the new Pearl Harbor that the Project for a New American Century had called for, uh, this whole event, uh, you would think that uh, he probably would have known what was going on. If he was an anti-hijacking specialist, he would have gone to work and uh, taken him down. But that's not what the official story is. You're going to start to see the same thing on Flight 93, Mark Rothenberg... Another Jewish gentleman supposedly was stabbed also. And here we have in San San Bernardino and Charlie Hebdo, same thing. There's always an anti-Semitism twist to every false flag. You're going to see it now that you know it's there. Interesting. Let's talk about the C.C. Lyles uh, 
hey, hey uh, Adam. Yeah. Uh, right. This is Mike Bennett. Um, are you all having any problem with the transmission? Uh, not. A, I don't think so. I think... Well, because just as, as soon as she started talking about the anti-Semitism thing, I started getting a really major degradation in my signal. And it started like really sort of getting ripped. It's very muffled. I can barely hear you. And it was really modulating. It still is real bad. And I just didn't know if you all had the same issue. Uh, it sounds clear here on my end. You sound perfectly clear. Okay. Yeah, okay. You sound good to me. Strange, too, yeah. Strangest thing. Sorry to interrupt the narrative here. Well, we, we, we've had weird things before. We, we, uh, to to, to kind of, we had Scott Bennett on the show uh, a few months ago, uh, Rebecca. And are you familiar with Scott? His Because yes. he, you know, the booze Allen Hamilton stuff and Dove Zakheim was plays a major part in his story as well. We were speaking to him about all his, the, uh, about John, he was talking about John Boehner, uh, resigning and some of the people like the UBS banking scandal. And as soon as he was talking about that, everything just went down. Like Rob's like entire <laughs> system, just like reset. It was, we still had the recording. Crazy. It was strange. It was extremely yeah. strange. They're busy watching us, but they, uh, <laughs> They'd like you to believe that they're so busy watching us that they can't watch these Pakistani terrorists. They'd like you to believe are really terrorists. But that right. whole thing is just right. insane there in San, San Bernardino. Oh, the I whole agree. story. I agree. But I want to talk about the CC, the CC Lyles tape. Now, uh, Rob, do you want to play that real quick? And, and kind of like tell us what we're going to hear here, uh, Rebecca, because I know you probably have this thing memorized. Well, I do. And, you know, it's interesting. Again, uh, just let me reiterate, in the common strategy, the FAA hijacking protocol, if you were to make a phone call, which in itself would be dangerous, because if a real hijacker were really on the plane and they saw a flight attendant with a phone to their ear, they would be certain that we would be calling somebody that could squelch their plan. And so that's a great way to get killed. And yet on flight 11, the flight attendants were on the phone for nearly 30 minutes, those two girls. And then we have a, a flight attendant from Flight 77, two flight attendants from Flight 93 that did something they should never have done. They called their spouses. Right. And instead of calling out to a number to get something done, uh, like your uh, security office or crew scheduling or something that you would do if you were going to do that, um, it, it just doesn't make sense. So when you what you're hearing uh, with Cece Lyles is she does call into her husband. She actually calls twice, and the first time she calls was at 9:47. And let me just tell you, according to the National Transportation Safety Board and the FAA, that at um, 9:37 until 9:49, that airplane was coming out of the sky from 42,000 feet down to 19,000 feet. Our very, very rapid descent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so she never mentions that. As a matter of fact, none of the people on Flight 93, uh, Jeremy Glick, he was a judo, a Jewish uh, judo champion. He was also a rugby player, and so was uh, Todd Beamer. All of the guys, Mark Bingham, Todd Beamer, Jeremy Glick, all of those guys were rugby players, six foot one to six foot four. 225 plus pounds and of their friends they all said they were competitively aggressive and super athletes so nobody could believe they just sat there and did nothing which is what they want you to believe they did but actually that's not quite how the game was played but cc lyles calls and she leaves this message for her husband to tell him goodbye 
afterwards, now, this is one of the tapes that I have found has been doctored when it's been put on YouTube, and it's been done to cause problems for people. But the one that I've heard, I have the FBI documents, so the tape recordings, uh, is after she's finished, she does not hang up the telephone, whatever kind of receiver it is, whether it's a cell phone or an office receiver, regular landline phone. And you can hear that phone exchange hands, as you would. You can hear kind of, you know, sound kind of like, like that. And... Um, then uh, you hear a woman's voice, and I've had people jack the, pr the um, sound of this up and put it through voice, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, where they can detect what it's saying better. And it says, you did great. Right. In a whisper. And it's a woman's voice. Go ahead and play that, Rob. All right, here we go. Now, Rebecca, I really do hear you did great. And I did look at a YouTube where actually I did pull this from YouTube myself, and then I kind of amplified the last part. But uh, someone on YouTube was saying that they felt that it was saying it's a frame, which doesn't make quite as much it, sense to me. It doesn't make any sense at all, because yeah. if you were a perpetrator, whether it's Cece or the woman that's telling her that, it, to say it's a frame doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you say that? And but uh, if you were being told uh, from a hanger, you were to call your husband because, again, this is not something a flight attendant would do. It's not protocol. We would never bring our family into this because it's a serious offense. And the only thing that we're concerned about is keeping our passengers and ourselves alive and safe. So we would follow protocol. That's just not something. And every flight attendant didn't follow hijack protocol. And so uh, if you were at a hangar, you would know you were already on the ground, so you'd really know. And if someone had a gun to your head and said, call your husband, well, yeah, you would do that. But that's not what protocol would be. So in a real hijacking, you wouldn't, one, make a phone call, two, make a phone call to your spouse or your, your parents, which Renee May did off of Flight 77. She called her mom and dad. She'd been flying... Not a long time, but she called her parents in Las Vegas. And again, one of the things that you'll see that most everyone called in, they were probably told by the perpetrators that had them on the ground, in the hangar, probably a gun to their head, saying, you better convince them we're in the air. Because when Mark Bingham called his mother, he said, mother, this is Mark Bingham. He yeah. used his first and last names. And he said, we're up in the air. We've been hijacked. We're up in the air. Just like she said, I'm on the plane. We're up in the air. I'm on the plane. And then he said, you do believe me, don't you, Mom? Right. 
And so right. there were things like that that people said that kind of led me to believe. Uh, another thing they, they used a lot was um, Amy Sweeney said to her boss, now this is something you would never do in the airline. If you're a supervisor, even if you're best friends with them, you just can't do this. You listen and listen to me good. She, she ordered him, listen and listen good. Uh-huh. Well, we just heard CeCe Lyle say the same thing. Listen carefully. Right. Yeah, you just wouldn't do that. I mean, you just wouldn't make that phone call to a spouse because a spouse is going to not react the right way to help you get help right away. Uh, but the airline people will. Uh, your crew schedulers usually is what we we have that number. Uh, that that's a number you would call if you were in Paris and your coworker got murdered or uh, you got sick. Even if you had the flu and you couldn't even see the numbers, <laughs> the hotel that we stay at, we stay at the same hotels all day. They have that phone number. So if I if I was so sick I couldn't dial, I could call the front desk and say, call screw, screw scheduling for me. Hmm. And they would because they have that number. So that's just the stuff that doesn't make any sense. And I saw so much of that that I realized that that something that we were told happened didn't really happen. Now I'm beginning to see that more and more often. Another thing that people started to ask me after Methodical Illusion was about Barbara Olson. I was about to ask now, you about Barbara that. O- <laughs> That's yeah, where I was going to go. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I'm getting really psychic. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, Barbara Olson's got an interesting story, too. Um, she has actually a Jewish maiden name. I don't know if she was or not. But she grew up in Texas, went to college there, and then she went to work in Hollywood, California, for HBO and Stacy Keach Productions. Go ahead and try to find out what Stacy Keach Productions was doing uh, between, like, 75 and 87 or so because you can't find anything. Mm. And you also can't find what Barbara Olson was doing in Hollywood. She could have been acting. She could have been the copy girl. We don't know, because there's no information what she did for an entire decade. But she came out of Hollywood because she was working there because her dad, who was a multimillionaire, uh, would put her through law school. She came out of there, had her money saved up from Hollywood because she didn't ever go out and spend money when she was working there doing whatever she was doing. And she went to a very expensive Jewish law school called Yeshiva University and it's located in right downtown Manhattan. Now, she came out of Yeshiva University and she went right to work for Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. And they are the number one top dog uh, attorney law office in Washington, D.C., now, interesting things about her uh, was that I found was she married Ted Olson, and Ted Olson was the attorney for the Israeli Mossad spy Jonathan Pollard. Right. Which right. I, I thought that was kind yeah. of an interesting and, coincidence. And at the time, he was the and Solicitor also, General of the United States. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And remember that Ted Olson, he, he did the weirdest thing any spouse could do. He made uh, phone calls right away to CNN to tell them about Barbara's phone calls. And then he said she called from her cell phone collect. No, she called from an air phone collect. No, she called from a cell phone. No, she called from an air phone. And she called three times, two times, or four times. His story just constantly changed. It was so bad that in the Zachariah Massawi, the 20th hijacking uh, trial, they didn't even mention Barbara Olson, period. Not a phone call, not Ted Olson, nothing. Zero, nada. And so the reason for that is she couldn't have called from an air phone because American Airlines removed all of their air phones, or if they were physically there, they were deactivated as of January 31st, 2001, nine months earlier. So she couldn't have called from a phone. That phone would have been there. It didn't work. 
They'd been deactivated. Whoops. So Ted's a liar. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I, I remember when that, I remember seeing that on TV. I remember him talking about it on TV and they had they made this big deal about Barbara oh, yeah. Olson. Oh, he was, yeah, he was a claim to fame. He had his 15 minutes of fame. If anybody knows anyone who has a spouse that would run to CNN and do interviews, it was his birthday. His wife had just been flown into the Pentagon, yeah. pulverized. There was nothing left of that airplane or any bodies from the plane, supposedly. And so would you run to CNN and do interviews? Hell no. Nobody right. would do that. And so you just have to look at this logically because it's not logical behavior. Plus, he was lying, obviously, about the phone calls. And Barbara well, if, Olson I, if I remember, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I remember right, when I watched him, there, there just didn't seem to be any kind of grief. Now, I know everybody responds differently, and men of a certain generation are pretty stoic. But it was amazing to me just the lack of natural grief for a tragedy <laughs> like that. Now, you know, that's not smoking gun, but it did raise yeah, it, me that very day. Yeah. Well, and the fact that he would just be interviewing, and he called them. Uh, and so the the whole thing, I mean, that's just inappropriate and wrong behavior. It's just not something that someone would do plus to go on and lie like that. And now I've been told, and I don't know this, but I've been told that his new wife, Lady Booth, is exactly the same height as Barbara Olson was. Uh-huh. And looks like she's had a lot of facial surgery and that she has no background. I believe she's an attorney, but no one can find where she came from. Uh, she's from Kentucky or Tennessee or someplace, but there's no bar records of her law degree or anything else. So there's a lot of suspicion around his new wife, too. So he's very suspect. But again, we have a Mossad connection with Jonathan Pollard, this being his attorney. She going to uh, Yeshiva University. That's an Orthodox Jewish uh, law school, by the way. It's not something you would go to do if you were a Catholic or if you were not Jewish. Let me ask you, I mean, well, I want to make the statement here that it seems that you, you talk about her being in Hollywood and the Stacey Keach Productions and what, what did Stacey Keach Productions do? Well, nothing that you that you could see. It, it seems that there is a huge relationship between Hollywood and the intelligence community, that they are very much entwined with each other. Um, that's very true, especially with HBO. And then um, also, just so you know, there was a Hollywood producer on Flight 11 sitting just across the aisle from supposedly where Mohammed Atta was sitting. And that was, uh, his name was David Angle. And he did the TV show Wings, yeah. coincidentally. <laughs> I, I guess he liked it. airplanes. Um, and he was also Jewish. So it's just weird that, yes, there is a great deal of, of connection. And if you guys... Uh, you want to find something real fascinating, get the TV show that I was on. I believe it was Fox TV. I don't watch television, but I got into this and I bought the discs and sets. And it's the 24 series with Jack Bauer. Mm -hmm. uh, Kiefer Sutherland played Jack Bauer. And I'm here to tell you that they are going to show you in those nine uh, seasons exactly how they did 9-11. It's all there. Interesting. Including how they set up... Uh, Islamic uh, boy to uh, wear a bomb and threaten to kill his brother and that type of thing. And this whole the whole thing, the override system where they overrode the voices of the air traffic controllers and the pilots and crashed planes, 
all of everything they did, including there's a lady there. She's an agent. She's like a triple agent. She's uh, Her name is Nina Myers. And Nina Myers did something that Daniel Lewin's friends all said he could do because his friends said he could kill any human being using a pen and a credit card. And she did that on one of the shows. And after I did all my study and wrote my book, and it sat on the shelf for two years, I honestly didn't know what to do with the information that I'd uncovered. And I started to watch all of those series, one after the other, with no commercials, <laughs> just disc after disc. And I was like, oh, my God, predictive programming, the whole thing is there, all yeah. of it. Predictive programming is everywhere on television. Uh -huh. So there is this huge Hollywood connection. And it's interesting, too, looking back now, we have this ISIS that they've created, and in the whole 24 series, there was, uh, like, you know, season six or seven, there was a representative that didn't have a, quote-unquote, country so much, but it was called the Islamic Republic or something. Uh -huh. So they've even come up with that. So his wife sort of looked Indian, Pakistani, and, I mean, they, were, they just didn't really have, they weren't with a real country. It's just very interesting to see that ISIS now really isn't a country. Now we've got Pakistan brought into uh, being in ISIS. So, yeah, it's going to get crazy here, you guys. Buckle up. <laughs> Dr. Future, let me bring you in here for a bit. Uh, I just want to kind of get your impressions on what Rebecca is, is, is saying and the thing that, that you would like to add. I know you've kind of been digesting it there on the uh, other end. Well, you know, it's um, <clears throat> I have followed this off and on since, you know, probably, well, you know, I tried to be astute on the time that it happened. I mean, I can remember the events of that day and trying to watch the news. But really, having a high degree of skepticism probably didn't really come on me to about 2005 yeah. and then has grown through then. So off and on, as the need arose, either when I was producing my own show, Future Quake, or in my book writing series, I've looked at different parts of this and to follow it carefully and so you don't pick up red herrings that, as we know, intelligence agencies oftentimes will throw out red herrings to try to trip up legitimate, sincere researchers that are asking too many questions. And so that's always an occupational hazard of trying to get to the truth. And so it's, it's always hard to get to the smoking gun irrefutable information because there are tons of circumstantial information here that, you know, even sometimes if it's circumstantial, just the, the sheer enormity of it uh, weighs heavily, whether it's in a courtroom or just a court of public opinion. So while that's there, trying to pick through all this, and, and by the way, I really appreciate your research you shared tonight. Uh, there's a whole lot to chew on here. You know, things like uh, why was the cell phone, uh, it was Mr. Beamer, right, uh, that was still calling after the, uh, the crash in Shanksville and other things. These are the kind of things that I would really like to have answers for. Uh, for that, something that I bring up maybe related to this, and I don't know if uh, Miss Roth was familiar with this or not. Um, I went to an anti-Sharia conference in 2011, and as we were starting the show, I was trying to look this up online to make sure I remember, since I didn't have my records with me, this, the Tennessee uh, state representative that spoke there. And uh, one of the things he said, I believe his name, by the way, I looked it up, is uh, Representative Rick Womack okay. uh, for Rutherford County. Yeah, he was a pilot. Now, this is a little bit out of left field on this, but I'll just throw this out here, too. Um, he was a pilot in the air on the day of 911, and he explained a certain time of the day when he was in the air, and they were told the first plane hit the first tower, 
And then he was told a few minutes later that another plane hit the tower, and that's when he knew it was terrorism, and they told all planes to land immediately. And when he said that, I went back and started looking on the records of when the planes hit, and the announcement of the second plane hitting the tower, the, the actual event happened after that, mm. unless there was something wrong on the timeline. And I went back and asked him later to confirm his time schedule, and he was adamant about it. Um, that the time that he and supposedly the other pilots were told to land because of a second impact was far before the second airplane actually hit the tower. That's not correct. And I have the government documentation for that, and that will come out in my third book. Okay. Uh, I have the FOIA information, and uh, unless he were on, I don't know where he was, unless he were on final landing into Washington or New York, and I mean on final, mm-hmm. you know, 8,000 feet on his way to, to land. Uh, no one no one was ordered to land right away. Uh, it, it didn't happen for uh, the first plane uh, hit at 8.46, supposedly. The second plane right. hit, supposedly, at 9.03. The uh, skies were somewhat shut down around New York, uh, around uh, 10 or so after 9 between 9.10 and 9.15 only. And then Washington was still okay until after the Pentagon was hit at 9.37. So, uh, and then we had Shanksville supposedly go down somewhere around 10, 10 10.03, 10.05. There's actually about 10 different official times that the Shanksville crash supposedly hit the ground, which is uncommon. It's absolutely unheard of because all of that stuff is recorded. Um, and so they like to get to believe that the recorders didn't work, blah, blah, blah. It, 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 because it was never anywhere near Shanksville. as mm-hmm. well, didn't. That's why they don't have the cockpit voice recorder. And they made one up. And unfortunately, what they did is they pulled a, a company that made uh, the cockpit voice recorders after that airplanes was it's a different company. One was Honeywell, and the other ones uh, was uh, Sunstrand or uh, mm-hmm. Signal, Allied Signal, or some other company. So it's just they just pulled one off the shelf. And when you pull a um, recording of the voice recorder, or the voice recorder on an airplane, it does a thirty-minute loop, mm-hmm. and so, uh, like the Russian plane, all of that from pushback to the time something um, made it blow up in the Sinai the other day was on recording, the whole thing. It's a 30-minute loop, and it just goes round and round. But um, unfortunately, when you open one of those up, it, had, it has uh, numbers that correspond to the aircraft, and that was in, inaccurate, too. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of hanky-panky with the black right. box. Well, I just, I just shared that. I, don't, I, I believe I have in my records, and I was going to review it when I get to the next volume I'm writing, which would include this meeting. Uh, I think I have videotapes that include his speech. So, I, you know, I would never go back and go on the record unless I went back and verified it again um, w- with what was said. And I wasn't trying to verify and say what he said was right. I just thought it was a discrepancy with what I had heard from when the crashes existed. And I can remember asking him in a circle of people after his talk about that, and I just sort of got a blank stare. And then immediately he went into some other kind of discussion and things. But his main thing was to get into the anti-Sharia. He was the one main one pushing legislation to uh, uh, stop the Muslim presence or any kind of Muslim serving the military and things like that. But uh, 
you know, I, I, and, and uh, Adam knows this, um, my expertise and background is investigating uh, aircraft fires and fire-related events and developing ways to stop it. And that's where my training is. I did crash investigation for the Air Force. And with all of that, my experience, even in, in some building-related incidents with fires and things like that, my main focus are, are on these other incidents, not how the buildings fell, but, but on the incidents that happened leading right up to the 9-1 events and afterwards. And that's where I think, and I think y your data gets into this, s some anomalies that, to me, honor the victims by getting some answers to them uh, in this respect. So I'm sure you hear all the time, like I do, that somehow you're dishonoring somebody by, by asking these questions. And I feel like it's the best way to honor uh, is to get to the bottom answers that they deserve. I have never been told that. It, really? Yeah. Good for I, you. As a matter of fact, I have literally hundreds of airline people that have read Methodical Illusion that contacted me and said, you, my friend, have found the missing piece of the puzzle. I said, that's why I put it on the cover. Mm -hmm. uh, and But so much more has come out in the second book. And then with since the second book came out, <laughs> I did an interview with SGT Report, and uh, it went viral. We have almost a million views on that. And so I'm getting people that really have the background that can read through this stuff. So we're finding stuff that's mind-blowing. And I thought my mind was blown when I wrote the first book and I found Westover. But, yeah. oh, my goodness, this is huge. It's much bigger than any of us ever dreamed. And the involvement isn't only uh, with the Mossad. Uh, like uh, Thomas Keene and, and Lee Hamilton said, the FAA and the uh, Pentagon and look at who was running the Pentagon. I mean, the comptroller was a rabbi, Dov Zakheim. Rabbi Dov Zakheim is very connected. Without him, we could not ever have had this event. If you read the project for New American Century and understand the mm -hmm. reason that they needed a new Pearl Harbor to rally the American sheeple behind their seven pre-planned wars, we have 14 years now, we look back and we see what we're doing over there, for what reason, where the pipelines are going, who's getting all the oil, who's selling the oil, who's stealing the oil, all of that stuff, where all the money's going. Just look mm -hmm. at that stuff, right? Well, so you know, my, yeah, my research on that, about the PNAC report, uh, in one of my earlier volumes I've written, I, I, I trace it back first back to the 96 Netanyahu campaign, where, where Wolfowitz and the others, the, the neocons had written PNAC, actually wrote that as part of his, I think it was called a, a clean break or a new break forward, something like that. But his main campaign approach for his 1996, really where he was coming out to being a national figure, had the overthrow of those same nations uh, in that is what was essential for Israel's interest as well. And it goes even all the way back to the 1992 Defense Quadrennial Review, where actually they give economic reasons why Afghanistan and Iraq had to be overthrown. <laughs> and so right. there's a long, long path that goes back to this to this scheme. The PNAC is almost uh, the last, uh, you know, I dotted and T crossed. Uh, and of course, as we know, the Iraq invasion plan was on the president's desk what, three or four days after the 911 event, I believe. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. Without uh, Rabbi Dov Zakheim, who had SPC Corporation, who made the flight termination system that took over the remote control of the aircraft, 
without him with the $2.3 trillion missing, misplaced from the Pentagon. He also had a consortium, a group of people that worked together outside of uh, Eglin Air Force Base, I believe it is, in Florida, that refurbished commercials, Boeing 767s, and turned them into military refueling tankers and sold them to militaries around the world. You wonder what happened to those four aircraft? Here's another interesting thing with Dobbs Zakheim. A subsidiary of, of SPC Corporation, Sam Paul Charlie, SPC Corporation, it's all still online, is called TriData. And TriData, after the FBI bombing in 1993, where they tried to frame, I believe, an Egyptian gentleman who tape recorded them for the bombing of the World Trade Center, TriData got the blueprints for the World Trade Center towers, and they are the only company besides the original architects to ever get the blueprints for the World Trade Center towers. So we have Dov Zakheim, who after he left the Pentagon, went to work as a vice president of Booz Allen Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So you just got to look and see. Without the good rabbi, 9-11 could yeah. never and would never have happened. Well, let me, ask, let me ask you this. The Malaysian airplane that disappeared, is it possible a similar event happened That's in that regard? That's the first thing I thought of, and the first thing I did was run the fuel count because they were going from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, and I ran the fuel count and turned around because when they showed you on the, on the TV, uh, CNN showed you the airplane turned around. They see that it turned right there, and if you kept going, it went right to Diego Garcia. And Diego Garcia is a joint base with the U.S., Israel, and the U.K., and it's a drone base. And indeed, they could have easily, the 7th Fleet, by the way, was drilling right there in the South China Sea mm -hmm. at that same time. They easily could have commandeered that aircraft using the same remote control device from an AWAC-type aircraft. Yes. With, with the public reaction so vehement after the Santa Barbara, or excuse me, um, uh, San Bernardino event yeah. Yeah, and others. Do you think it will be necessary for them to do another mega aircraft event to get the public behind what they want, which is a major Mideast boots on the ground war? Do you uh, think they'll do this again? Yes. As a matter of fact, um, after this show, I'm going to uh, <laughs> where I have a little better internet speed and upload my radio uh, show. I have a show on Talk Network, which is Mike Adams. Mm. Uh, uh, new network and I'm going to bring it up to my Rebecca Roth channel on YouTube and that's something we talked about for two hours on my show uh, yesterday and the reason I did that is I got information from someone uh, I found in the methodical illusion if you haven't read that uh, there's a tape recorder pen that they find that is uh, something that I actually found on an Israeli online newspaper called Ynet News right and I read it out loud, thankfully to my husband. It was scrubbed within probably six to eight hours, and no one can find any trace of it. Thankfully, I read it out loud, and I have a really mm -hmm. good memory. But this is what it said. It said that the Israeli intelligence had, accept, uh, uh, had intercepted al-Qaeda's plan to commemorate the anniversary of the Osama bin Laden's death of May, the, the fake Navy SEAL team death. Osama bin Laden mm -hmm. died December 26, 2001. Mm -hmm. And even the prime minister in Pakistan, and of course, they murdered her right after she said that. But she was on right. with Trump 
Rose, you can find it on YouTube, uh, telling that in December. It was on Fox News as well, I believe, but um, that he had died. But they needed to keep him alive as the boogeyman. So this article goes on to say to commemorate the anniversary of his death, May 1st for nine, or May 2nd for nine days until May 11th. And that 9-11 popped out in my face so bad it almost slapped me that they would use <laughs> Al-Qaeda would use biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons and attack five or six major cities in the United States. And one of the things that happened to me is someone came with a great scenario of why they would choose Chicago. Remember, they just are moving New York Fed, the Federal Reserve uh, Branch in New York, because of their fear of natural disasters in New York. They announced that they would be moving most of the, the stuff there to Chicago. And so this person that uh, <laughs> sent me all this information about that, and I thought Chicago, of course, the um, mayor of Chicago, his father was a, an Israeli terrorist. Rahm Emanuel. Yep. Yes. And so um, it probably will strike Chicago. And uh, we've got the Sears Willis Tower. And remember, Flight 93, or excuse me, Flight 175 United on 9-11. Peter Hansen called in his father, and he told his father three minutes before impact that he thought the hijackers, for some reason, now the aircraft was barely 5,000 feet. He should have been saying if he were really on the plane and the, really, the plane was really there, that they were landing in LaGuardia. But what he said was he thinks the hijackers, I don't know why he would think this, were going to fly the plane to Chicago and into a building. Well, one of the things I'm finding is that there was at least one, if not two, aircraft that they didn't grab. They Something went wrong. The transponder was set wrong. They, the flight termination system couldn't get them. Maybe they were getting trouble from some of the military-trained pilots of those first aircraft that were on the ground in Westover. Something happened that those other planes didn't go because the Secret Service let out a rumor. You might remember hearing this because I have it all in the documentation, too. They, um, they said that an aircraft hit Camp David. And the Sears Tower, downtown Chicago, the Willis yeah. Tower, was evacuated that morning. I remember hearing those rumors that day. I remember hearing that there were rumors that they had hit the Sears Tower. That, mm -hmm. was, the, that was the main thing that I had heard. Huh? I, yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, in the time that we have left here, I, I, I really, because, you know, Dr. Future has looked into this as well, and so have you. So that's kind of why I wanted to get you guys together on the same show and this is the the case of the Israeli art students. This is one of the most bizarre incidents that that that, that occurred that day. I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit about the Israeli art students and them uh, supposedly celebrating on the roof, and that they were they the later were given this uh, the reason they gave that why they were celebrating or why they were even there filming it was to quote unquote document the event. Okay. Well, here's that there's three things that um, we need to talk about. One, those are the five dancing Israelis they've become known as. Right. And they were in uh, New Jersey and a woman saw them and she thought they were, uh, you know, kind of crazy to be rejoicing. They were mm -hmm. jumping up and down on their van. They were holding lighters and seeing the smoking towers behind them across the uh, Hudson. 
Those are called the five dancing Israelis. They went back to Israel. Uh, they were held actually here. Michael Chertoff released them. They were held in the United States so roughly for a month. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then, now, Michael Chertoff is an Israeli as well, too, right? That's correct. And not only that, one of the things I found interesting about one of the phone callers from United 175 is he told his father that an airline hostess had been stabbed, and we've only been called flight attendants and stewardesses in the United States. Airline hostess is a foreign term, and just coincidentally, Michael Chertoff's mother, who was also a Mossad agent, was the first airline hostess for El Al Israeli Airlines, really? just coincidentally. Mm -hmm. So, and we had this other thing going on. We had in the months and months leading up to 9-11, we had two sets of art students. Besides those five dancing guys, those were the dancers. We had two sets of art students. One of them was a group called the Gelatin, as in blasting gelatin. They named their, their group Gelatin. They came from Austria. They were living on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center towers. They were given in on my website for the second book, methodicaldeception.com. If you go into the resources and follow the links to the artists, and there you'll see them there, you'll see there's five pages of artwork and pictures from the book they made. They made a book called The Bee as in Bomb or Boy or Balcony, The Bee Thing. And it's printed, it's out of print, but I know someone that just bought it for $500 and sent me a Dropbox of all the artwork that's in their book. What they did, this was their art project, they snuck in, they were living on the 91st floor of the tower, and they uh, stealthily removed a window without anyone noticing from the 91st floor and set a wooden balcony out. Now, their sponsor... Uh, had rented the top floors of the Millennium Hotel. Remember, that was right there because we saw a lot of people that were showing film from the Millennium Hotel. There was one of the bushes that was there when, instead of being at the uh, the uh, restaurant at the top, too. Remember, he canceled his meeting at the last minute. And Mar I think it was Marvin Bush that was there. And so he Wasn't was in he the head of security in the yeah. World right. Trade Center? Right. Yeah. <laughs> we're all involved in it. And so... Um, we had these guys, and they had temporary. You can actually see. I found a picture of a temporary construction pass, which, according to William Rodriguez, who was the janitor that saved so many people, and is now, right. I believe, outside of the United States. Um, according to him, they had the run of the entire World Trade Center complex with that paper pass, uh, a construction pass that they had, temporary construction, Monday, uh, Sunday through Sunday. It was. You can see it on my uh, webpage. It's right there. <laughs> I didn't make it, um, but I did find it from, from their book. And so what they did was they took all these pictures. One, their sponsor who had a gigantic party of all these people to see them push the uh, balcony out, took pictures. He also rented a helicopter and took pictures from the helicopter of this balcony. No security ever, ever found out about this. And on August 16th or 18th, I'm not sure exactly, the, 2001, just a couple weeks before 9-11, the New York Times ran a huge spread on these artists, the Gelatin Group from Austria. Well, now, the other group, okay, first I got to tell you this. There is pictures uh, on my webpage of them, and you will see cardboard boxes behind them. Uh -huh. And these boxes are marked with numbers, and the number's BB-18. And I have been contacted by people that are in demolition. These are called 
power fuse bars that are BB-18. That's what they are from the Lytel Fuse Company. The Lytel Fuse Company is a subsidiary of Tracor. Tracor is one of the largest, if not the very largest, electronics contractors to the Department of Defense and the U.S. government. So Lytel or Little Fuse Company makes these power bars that can be used for wiring your home or an office building, but the towers had been wired since the early 70s. So they weren't being rewired. There was no rewiring construction going on there. But they can also be used, and I have to tell you, I've probably been contacted by 20 people that have been in demolition. And yes, indeed, they can be used for remote control demolition. Well, and let's stop. Let me just stop this a minute. Adam, let me ask you. Yeah. Does this company ring a bell with you for something significant that they have invested in? The, this company that makes these these light bars, this light tail. Actually, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't, Mike. I, I, it it really rings doesn't a bell. There is a major organization, and, I, and I've got to make sure I don't want to misspeak here. There is a major organization that they fund. The guy who is a – he's like a – one of the world's richest men, if it's the same company I'm thinking of, and he funds a major organi organization in this activity, and I'll have to do some homework in it. But it's funny you brought up that company because I believe that's the exact name of it. Well, it's interesting because the Lytel, or the not Lytel Fuse Company, or Little, as some people tell me it's pronounced Little, but it looks like Lytel. Uh, Tracor International it has a quite an interesting background. They actually were bought out by BAE Systems. And if you look at the passenger lists, there were lots of BAE System employees on the planes on 9-11, just coincidentally. Um, but they also uh, have a very interesting background. They bought a company called Vitrol, V-I-T-R-O-L, Vitrol. And they actually started the uh, Aegis... Uh, uh, missile guidance system uh, years and years ago and they were uh, also bought out by a company called Kellex and Kellex was started by a guy by the last name of Kellogg and uh, it was a secret way of uh, producing uranium for the Manhattan Project they were actually originally located in downtown Manhattan, right next to the Woolworth building. Now, on 9-11, there were lots of people that were calling in to the police and fire department and first responders that, and police on the ground that, that reported that they saw missiles being launched from the Woolworth building right in downtown Manhattan what? before anything hit the first tower. Coincidentally, wow. but it's an interesting connection. So we have these uh, artists that were living living there, and who had joined them were some of the other artists that were a part of the 61-page DEA report that I discovered. And it's also on my webpage, so you can just keep reading about the artists and click on for more information. And you'll see the 61-page DEA report. Now, this DEA agent, what happened was these Israeli art students, the Drug Enforcement Agency was monitoring an ecstasy ring of Israelis bringing in and making ecstasy. And what they found were these uh, artists, they were traveling around, they were buying cheap prints in, in China and selling them to federal agents. And they uh, made the mistake of showing up at offices that were not uh, public information, like a federal marshal and his house and his wife would 
<laughs> he'd come home and his wife would say, some Israeli art students were by today, dear. And huh. they, somebody got suspicious of them. And they were doing this for years. And by the way, they're still in this country. They're back. They've never really left. I've been contacted by people that were based on Guam. And, and in the island of Guam, I think there's four military bases, not much else. And they were, uh, and I believe that was in 2009 or 10. They were all over uh, the NSA a new building. Remember, we all heard about that in Bluffdale, Utah, in 2009, 10, right. and 11. So they're still here traveling around. And one of the things they were doing is they were asking very suspicious questions about the security or the construction or looking for blueprints. They were actually asking uh, women in the Salt Lake area if they knew someone that was working there uh, and they were looking for blueprints of the NSA. Uh, I don't know. It's a, what do you call that? A fusion center, but it's a big spy center where they're going to mm -hmm. data collection. And uh, they say so they were very interested in that in the Utah area. Just a couple months ago, I read that they were in Wyoming and Colorado traveling around. And they, they're often referred to as Middle Eastern. Well, they are. <laughs> they are Middle sure. Eastern. They're right there in the thick of it. But they're not, they are not Middle Eastern Arab Muslims. They are uh, Israelis. Okay, so these, uh, in the 61-page report, you're going to see people's names, their military ID, and the fact that uh, some of them were uh, bomb experts for the Israeli Defense Forces. And we're talking ordnance experts. So when you look at the art students and you see them wearing repelling gear and you see all of those power fuse bar holder things behind them in boxes and boxes and boxes of them, then you're going to start to understand how they made those, uh, those uh, Roadrunner cutouts when you see the airplane cutouts when it looks like an airplane cut right through like a hot knife through butter. Even the wingtips, if you look at those really carefully, you can see they're very faked, but that would have been how they could have done it. So you know, planting the explosives like that. And um, there's lots of interesting pictures because they were actually living there in uh, the World Trade Center. Some of the gelatin art group were joined by some of these Mossad bomb experts as well. So, Rebecca, you don't believe that the planes hit any planes hit the or hit the towers that it uh, would that they may have been remote control planes or a smaller something smaller. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've tried to look at that Naudet Brothers film a thousand times and slow the film down as slow as I can. That aircraft definitely or whatever it is looks way too small to be a 767. All okay. you got to do is go to the airport and watch for 767 to come through and, you know, get relatively close to the end of the runway so you can see how big they are if they're a thousand feet off the ground. Cause that's where it would have been a thousand feet off the ground. That airplane's big. I mean, it's right, very right. big. And so, uh, you know, what I did was I actually got on flight radar 24. It's a program you can get on your computer and go to your nearest airport and then uh, just park yourself where you see these airplanes coming in that are about 1,000 or 2,000 feet elevation and sit there and look how big that airplane is and find yourself a 767. There's no mistaking. They're huge. And so when somebody has one fly right over their house so close you can see the window, she's sure it's going to crash into the ground shortly. And that's, that's who's come forward from Western Massachusetts. So I have people that have seen at least two different aircraft landing up there so far. And so, um, I 
don't, uh, like I said, every airline person wants to know how did they make that happen. The 767 they show on TV uh, has a pod underneath it, has a different structure, and that's the pilots don't understand what that is. And that, I mean, I for a while thought that it was a remote-controlled, maybe one of Dov Zakheim's military tankers that he had, because the eyewitnesses said there were no windows, that it wasn't a commercial plane. The people they first talked to, and they didn't talk to them again. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't get on Larry testimony. King. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you get a lot of conflicting things, but, but what an aircraft, an aluminum aircraft, does when it gets hit by a bird is pretty phenomenal. So for it to fly into a building that has cement floors and steel beams like that, I've looked at the construction too, it would not have done that. It would have crashed outside more of the building. I mean, at least the tail section wouldn't have made it through because it's impossible that the airplane at that low of altitude, let's say 1,000 feet, could be going uh, at the 500 miles an hour. It's impossible. The airplane will fall apart because the air is thicker down below. And that's only the maximum speed when it's at 35,000 feet elevation. And, and the Pentagon, do you think that that was possibly a missile? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a bomb right here on you. I found the launch site. All right. It was not an aircraft. <laughs> Interesting. And it's in their documentation. As a matter of fact, one of the guys I was working with said, I cannot believe they released this in the Freedom of Information Act. You got to well, know what you're looking for. You see, that's where, for me, I feel very blessed that some really incredible people have come forward to help me see the. the I had eyes to see the, as a flight attendant, they have eyes to see as military personnel, air traffic controllers, and the like. Well, Rebecca, we are almost out of time, but I want to bring Dr. Future in here real quick. Uh, what do you think about some of the, uh, some, how does this job with some of the, your research as well, Mike? Well, as far as the art students, um, I, I, I'm trying to make sure in the research that I'm publishing that I've got good sound, uh, good sound references that aren't even just references that meet my standard, but would meet the skeptic. And so I try to only use things like court hearing data, uh, official government documents, or major newspapers of record. And even with that, there is ample information about platoons of these Israeli art students that were all over the country with, in their hands, uh, security people found them having detailed documents of the layout of military installations. Uh, they were going in under the guise of trying to raise money for school. Uh, they trace these people all having come from the Israeli army, much of them having. Now, it's not a shock, you know, just about everybody has to serve in the army in Israel. But, but they, uh, you know, a lot of them had intelligence background experience. They refused to speak up. They could make a few phone calls just like these other ones that were shipped back over to Israel. They make a few phone calls and they get out. And for, for all of the complaints I've made about the FBI uh, in the past, the FBI knew that these people were up to something. And they were screaming to our government that there was something crooked going on in the year leading up to 911. And so, uh, you know, the documents are available where the FBI is saying these people are scouting up something to do something. Uh, there's also evidence that where all the hijackers, all these little places where they spread out, there were Israeli groups following them every step of the way. Now, did right. they have an association with them directly? Um, 
you know, that's a very interesting thing to consider. But the Israeli art students were already fingered by the FBI is up to something no good before. And the, the, the ones that were caught celebrating, it's sort of ironic this comes up because I did write about that a lot. And it's back in the news because in, just in the last day, um, some of the people who supposedly have been referenced directly or indirectly by Donald Trump that were celebrating on 911 were mistakenly said to be Muslims when it was actually these Israeli guys. And really? the story of the Israelis that were on top of their van, the moving van, uh -huh. uh, somehow in, in the last 24 hours has been repackaged to be Muslims. And it's trying to undergird Donald Trump's position right now. But there's a story out on ABC News that I grabbed where they basically verified all of these stories that had already been elsewhere in the press about um, you know, how they were called because some lady was on the ball and saw their license plate number and what they were doing. Uh, I actually remember watching the events that day when they shut down all the tunnels in Manhattan because they were looking for a white van of people they thought were involved. And several newspapers wrote about when they, put these, when they grabbed these guys out and they said, we're Israeli, we're Israeli. Uh, now you understand what it's like. And uh, the stories that I recollect uh, seem to be that they had drawings for things like the World Trade Center in the van as well as the box cutters. And explosives. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I didn't even, didn't yeah, even recollect did. that one from the yeah. reference. Yeah, but, they did have. There was actually two vans that were caught, and they did have explosives, okay. and they could have taken out one of those tunnels for sure. Well, they, they went back a second time to talk to the head of the moving van company, and he had already... Uh, had had a plane chartered. Even the time when all these planes were shut down, the, Is <laughs> the Israelis got him out of the country and back to Israel. And the FBI was squealing about all of this, and it turned out it was a front operation for the Israelis. It was a Mossad the operation, uh, urban movers. Yeah. It, it's true. And um, it, l let me just, before I forget, let me just interrupt you for a second and tell you something. When Barbara Olson went to work for Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, one of the mind-blowing things I discovered when I looked at their client list was the very first person on their list was Akamai Technologies. <coughs> that is the name of the company that the guy in 9B, the uh, Sayret Metcall <coughs> agent, owned. What are the chances that Barbara Olson worked for Wilmer Cutler and Pickering and they were... Akamai Technologies was a client. The other company in alphabetical order under that was Amdocs. And the, uh, in the DEA document that you'll read, when these uh, Israelis, some of them, got arrested for overstaying their visas and working, make, you can't come here on a tourist visa and, and work. You can only come here and be a tourist. So they were uh, put, thrown in jail for overstaying their visit and also making money and working while they were here because they were caught with a couple hundred thousand dollars. They were bailed out by two companies. One was Amdocs, <laughs> the same company that's a client of Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, Barbara Olson's law firm where she worked. By the way, Robert Mueller went to work there too, and Jamie Gorlick from the 9-11 Commission went to work at that same law firm. But another company called NICE, N-I-C-E, all capital letters. And if you do a quick Google search on the Israeli, the IDF Mossad unit, 8200 of those signal intelligence specialists started this company, and I believe they're located in Richardson, Texas, and they are in this country. They are the other company that bailed out these traveling artists, just so you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the uh, the FBI wanted to hang on to these people strongly, and particularly the, those five celebrants. And uh, they were overruled from up above because the FBI knew they were they had problems. Uh, they had failed lie detector tests. Uh, they clammed up under interrogation, and uh, higher strings were pulled. And then they went over and flew over to Israel and celebrated mm-hmm. their activity on behalf of Israel against America on Israeli television. Yes, and they did say that they were sent to right. America to document the event. So you have to ask yourself who sent them and when did they get to the United States because it's about a 14-hour flight. Documenting the event would imply also foreknowledge. Right. And I, I want to add a couple of things to this, too. And I remember the day, the day of 9-11, two things that I remember. I remember Netanyahu being on television saying that now basically now you we, we've lived with terrorism for a long time and now you know how we feel second thing is the footage of the uh supposedly the arabs celebrating 9-11 which later turned out to be footage from a year previously from a i believe a funeral of a, of a leader of hamas mm-hmm. it's like you have to wonder where did that come from that particular footage hey one of the best things that <laughs> <laughs> that I found that blew me away was Ehud Barak, who is also Sayer at Metcall. He was in the BBC uh, studios in London that morning, but he had just been in New York the night before. And he's the one who coined the phrase war on terror. And he's also the one that probably loaded up Jane C- uh, Stanley's teleprompter that she stood there in New York with the Solomon Building, a.k.a. Building 7, standing behind her while she's reporting that it had collapsed. And that was about mm-hmm. 20 minutes before it did collapse. But someone in the BBC studios, probably Ehud Barak, knew that it was going to collapse because if you watch that, it was a controlled demolition. There is no doubt in your mind. I remember seeing it happen. I was still glued to my television set that day in the afternoon when that happened. And I thought it was, I thought to myself, well, how in the world did they get that rigged for a controlled demolition that fast? I knew people in controlled demolition work, so I knew that it was going to take longer than a, a few hours to do that. But that's <laughs> what I saw, a controlled demolition. Mm-hmm. If I could ask a question before we conclude, I want to make sure for my further research, if we compare notes, that the Lytel company that you said was associated with the people who were the artists there at the World Trade Center, if I remember correct. You look at the the pictures that they included in their book and uh, in the B B thing is the name of their book. It sells for about $500. You can still find them. But I'm going to try – I have most of the pictures on, on my website the boxes behind those artists, they're empty cardboard boxes all taped together, are the boxes marked BB-18, which are uh, correspond to this little fuse company that's a Tracor Incorporated subsidiary that are power bar fuse holders that can be used for wiring and they can be used for remote control demolition wiring as well. So <laughs> it's kind of complicated, but you can. Uh, okay, I've got that up right now. I see uh, okay. it's L I T T E L, little fuse. Yeah. And the BB 18 Power Bus Bar series, I see that uh, right mm-hmm. now. I'm looking, uh, I've had a lot of involvement with, with this kind of work from my work with the Air Force with detonators and different things like this. So I find this interesting that, but there, there is a, this company 
are they involved with anything else related to surge protection or anything else like this? Uh, well, you can just go on their website and see all the things. All right. Okay. So interested in what I saw in these boxes and the fact that they can be used to hold remote control demolition fuses. And so they can be, you know, programmed to go off at a certain time. Right. Okay. But yeah, I mean that's what they—that's their business. The thing that I found interesting is the connection to uh, Tracor, which actually ended up being bought out by BAE Systems, mm -hmm. and their connection to Kellex, Kellogg, and that's KBR, and that's Halliburton. Hello, so Brown Root. It's all yeah. connected. But you are welcome to um, contact me on the Skype if you want to. Okay. Share notes or something, and uh, just send me a friend request after our show, and. And uh, I, I'll steer you to wherever I can get you to go. Okay. I'll share anything I have with you. I, I, it's, it's about, to me, it's about the truth. And on behalf of the flight attendants and the pilots and the passengers of that day, I will keep talking the truth until I can't speak any longer. Well, the, the Littell Fuse Company, when I highlight their products, uh, you, you remember I mentioned something about surge protection? They have a surge protection module is one of their products that they offer. And there was someone, and, and my mind escapes me, I'm having a senior moment here, but um, <laughs> someone who, who has made a fortune in these surge protections with, I believe, this same name, is, is behind some other nefarious activities, and that's sort of where the buck stops. You could follow the trail up to this billionaire supplier, and it stops there. So I'll, I'll have to pick this up from here, but this is an interesting tip. You know, a lot of these things end up being red herrings, but uh, often where there's smoke, there's fire, excuse the pun. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this will be very interesting to take further. Rebecca, where can people get your books? You can get autographed books from any of my three websites. And there's a little button there. You can push autographed books. You can get all the books there. And I actually have a special right now till the end of the year. If you buy two sets, you'll get a free set. So it's like paying for four books and getting six um, and that's a methodical illusion and a methodical deception. Of course, you can order them from any bookstore, and they're also available on Amazon, and it's in a Kindle electronic format on Amazon, and the price on the Amazon uh, Kindle is $9.11. And I have read both books. They are very entertaining, and they, they're they very good books. A lot, lot of information packed in. So. Yeah, it's interesting. People ask me, you know, they think I, I really had a girlfriend that died in Paris, but that, that was part of the novel. Right. But all of the 9-11 information is real. Those are screenshots that you see in the appendix from the methodical deception from the terabyte of information that I have. And, you know, we were looking at that stuff and going over and trying to figure out how come the NORAD doesn't show these airplanes at the same location the FAA's got them and none of it worked with the phone calls. Nobody on those phone calls ever mentioned a six to 10,000 foot descent per minute. <laughs> and that's scary. And I'm like, why? You could be sitting on the phone talking and not ever say, Jesus, we're coming out of the sky. <laughs> and so that's what, those are the things that I saw that I think they weren't even in those planes. They weren't even in the sky. And that's kind of one of the things that I realized was going on. So, uh, but I, yeah, I, I was looking all of a sudden, we looked to the meta tags and I was like, oh my goodness, these uh, things were uploaded before the planes even took off. Yes. That's the radar. So that's why <laughs> the, the radar didn't didn't mesh with the the NORAD, the military radar, and the it showed the airplanes in different locations and different altitudes, and they weren't even close to each other. Well, Rebecca, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate the things that you've done. 
uh, it's really just mind-blowing and mind-boggling information, but it, I think it is necessary. And I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And anybody that has any information, you can click the button to email me from any one of my three websites. It's methodicalillusion.com, methodicaldeception.com, and rebeccaroth.com, and it's R-E-B-E-K-A-H, R-O-T-H. Excellent. Well, uh, we're going to close out this segment, and guys, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, you Conspiranormal junkies out there. What would you think about that one? Man. That was a ton of information, and uh, I just kind of want to get what you think, uh, Luke, what you think, Rob, about uh, well, all that. What I mean, you know, I stayed silent most of the show because, like, I, I've just watched your standard uh, documentaries, I, I believe, like, C1, like I was talking about, or, or L5 or something like that, I remember. I've never heard of these. And I, I watched... Uh, Watch Zeitgeist along with everybody else, you know, and then and I've heard all of the get we've we've brought up nine eleven so many times on so many different shows, and yeah, yeah it gets exhausting at times, but it, it's also very interesting. Uh, Rebecca just has so many leads and um, you know so so many different directions of research and study, and like Mike said, you know, it, it is it's noble and and uh, for for anyone to be a truth seeker like that and come forth with with all this data. Uh, it, it's great. That's what that's what kind of blew my mind is um, almost the entire interview was things I had never heard of before up until the very end where she mentioned Building Seven. But you know, prior prior to that, it was all um, right. It, it's all new stuff. And yeah, that's, and, that's what made it refreshing <laughs> for me too. Is that it's not the same old repeated information. And such an interesting perspective too from someone who's worked in the, um, the airplane industry and knows the procedures and the policies right. and right. And, and, and Dr. Future, your experience that you have, I believe you brought some of that to the table tonight with your experience you working for the Air Force and the ex- experiments that you used to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and most of that on the scientific side would relate to the actual crash event itself. Um, and But that's not really the – at this time, it's not the area of my focus. You yeah. know, my biggest concern – you know, people will debate – ad nauseum about what happened with the towers and why they fell to me there is so much curious uh seemingly unprecedented activity going on just before this event and after that that's where we really need to focus in my view now if someone feels called to focus on did they find thermite or things like that in the in the records then fine you know that's great uh contribute to it but there's some other things that really deserve answers and uh I, th- I think we have a, in some ways, as citizens, a duty uh, to do yeah. that. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think if you look at, for me, it's more of just looking at the pre nine eleven or like what people knew and who knew what when. I, I think there's a lot there to just say that that if the very least somebody, uh, it, it could have happened the way that we were told, but somebody actually just allowed it to happen that way. But I, I, but I think there's a lot more to it, especially with uh, Rebecca's uh, information. Because like I said, so much of what I had heard of 9-11 until I heard her speak, I was just kind of bored with. But mm-hmm. I thought that she had brought a kind of a, a, a fresh approach to it. 
you know. What What's the information you find most compelling that grabs you the most? I, I, well, I mean, there's several things, but I think the one, the one major one would be just her uh, experience as a flight attendant and her looking at the calls and saying, this does not fit with what I was trained to do, how I was brought in to to the procedures right it does it does not fit <laughs> that's what it was for me too is there was um you know on multiple planes nobody followed the proper procedure or policies not like right that mm. i mean that just seems incredible uh, uh i had a, i had a question too i you know, there was so much crossfire of information going on i didn't want to interject uh during the the actual show segment but uh what happened i mean is there any kind of record of what happened to the actors uh that were supposed to be on the plane and then like the uh how do i phrase that uh what what happened whenever the family members got these distress calls and then that person actually showed up i mean is there any kind of what do you mean they actually showed up uh yeah well you know like the the call at the beginning of the show Whenever, yeah. if if she is acting, if that is all an act, then what happened to the actual okay. lover sibling that she was right. calling? Right. Well, I, I we didn't really get into this because there, like you said, there was a lot of information there, and kind of what Rebecca thinks is that this is her theory is that is that these people were told to do this possibly at gunpoint, and then that they were possibly. She thinks that these people were gassed and killed. And there's some other people that think that. Like, I think Jim Mars thinks that as well. Uh, now, the other possibility could be that it, the way that she looks at some of these passengers and all these connections, that a lot of these people were probably working for military industrial complex. And that who knows if, if the information that we're getting is the right information. Who really knows? Yeah. You have anything that, to, to add to that, Mike? Uh, no. Um, you know, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> there are certain areas of this that I've tried to focus on that were what was relevant to the focus of my, my book series. And the others, I've just had to leave it to other experts right now because it can be overwhelming. That's, right. Yeah, I just laugh because that's how I always feel about <laughs> <laughs> I feel that well, way on every show, yeah. <laughs> We're we're about out of time, but uh, we got something else here that I think is overwhelming. And Luke had an experience like about a month or so ago. We were going to talk about it on the last <laughs> show, but he wasn't here. And uh, Doctor Future, I think you'll find this absolutely fascinating as or, well. Or horrifying. But this is <laughs> Luke. I want you to talk about your experience at uh, Circus So Gay. <laughs> yeah. So. So my my girlfriend has always been, um, you know, the the trendy type to hang out in like East Nashville, the artsy crowd, and with along with the artsy crowd comes a lot of homosexuals. <laughs> I have nothing against them, you know. I, I'm I'm friends with a few of them. Uh, I you know I see them no differently. We're all equal, you know, in my eyes. But uh, it was it was a fun party. I I went to this party thinking oh, I'm going to feel weird. I'm going to feel awkward because I'm going to be one of the only straight people here. <laughs> but uh, everybody there, it was a really good time. And uh, Adam wants me to talk about some of the festivities. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so is, this is this part of the conspiranormal uh, 
broadcast here. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's pretty it's it's pretty conspiracy abnormal as you okay. said once. All right. Well, uh, so so we're up in this room and it's like it's like the drug room, you know, where everybody's like getting getting their party drugs and everything. Uh, not me. You know, I'm just, you know I'm just not straight. Luke. Luke doesn't do that. You're, a, you're a straight arrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and sexually, yes. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Uh, so, so we're inside, we're inside this closed bedroom and, um, everybody's exchanging their party drugs and stuff, you know, from, from the dealer that's at the party. And, and I, I get this, uh, this furry that comes in the room dre- dressed as a raccoon. You might want to explain he, if anybody doesn't know what a furry is. Just, uh, just picture someone who wears a football mascot costume and, uh, you know, participates in weird activities in it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Google will help you here. Yeah, exactly. Google is furries. This sort, is this sort of like as wide shut kind of activity? <laughs> I, it's it's kind of it kind of resembles but, that, bro. <laughs> but the 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 drunk raccoon comes in and and he's wearing bondage uh, leather on top of his costume and <laughs> and leans on me and makes friends with me. <laughs> That's all it took. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, he he was so drunk he couldn't stand up, so he's he's like started leaning well, on me and like using me as support. Didn't you have a raccoon? Wasn't there a fox and an elephant? An elephant, zebra boy, and a zebra. Yeah, and uh, you got the, so the ring. So this was a children's party, in other words. <laughs> well, I guess we all act like children there. For, uh-huh. So yeah, and there was a bouncy castle in the backyard. So okay, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Well, you said when you got there that there was somebody dressed as like a what a carnival barker. Yeah, like a, saying, he was like come the, all, c- come the, on, come on. One to- of the guys hosting the party was he was dressed as like the ringleader, and uh, he you know had the huge mustache, like the fake like curly mustache and the top hat and everything, which is very common in East Nashville. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. That's that's a daily basis. And uh, there was also a drag queen letting everybody in. Yeah, the... there there was a, a well. She had nothing to. She was not any kind of organizer or anything in the party. Like she, <laughs> he, he or she, whatever. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I was offensive saying that. I shouldn't have said that. But uh, she was sitting there guarding the door, and like not letting people in, acting like she was part of the. <laughs> But eventually, anyway, like later on in the night, she actually ends up getting drug out to a taxi because she she offended someone or just got too drunk and started pissing people off. Now, remind me again, this group, who, who, what type of group was sponsoring this? Uh, it, it it's just a party house on on Dickerson Road somewhere. <laughs> on Dickerson, okay. <laughs> does that okay. say does that say enough? <laughs> Okay, so if I'm on Dickerson, watch out for furries. Yeah, you might see them across yeah. the street. Okay, <laughs> this is the <laughs> this is the excitement that you could have, Doctor Feature. It was you weird with Luke Moore. Now, would this be similar to the hundredth uh, episode extravaganza? Experimental? Yeah, well, well, we're still working on our costumes. We haven't quite coordinated uh, it yet. Please, right. please don't dress as furries. <laughs> Get me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, we've we've got the we've got the furry costumes ready here for the. <laughs> okay. We're gonna have a fur pile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a real interesting life there, Luke. <laughs> yeah, 
I don't know how I get in these weird situations sometimes. And then you had like a, happens. there was like another party you went to with a hippie singing about chemtrails. Oh yeah. Uh, um, it was at the basement East and there was a, a bunch of hipsters and, you know, just swaying back and forth to, uh, I'm not going to say it. like most of the bands playing were pretty good. You know, there, there were some catchy songs up there on stage, man. But, uh, you know, this one guy that, that everybody was really into. He's a real popular figure. You know, he's got a lot of money. Um, his, uh, that his family owns a popular venue in town. I don't want to say all these details. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, his, his songs are awful, but the, <laughs> the crowd didn't care. You know, they're, they're all into it. They're wearing their, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, Baja jackets and swaying back and forth. And <laughs> well, let me ask you this at the furry party. Did a lot of those people ask you about the the three of us, what we were really like? Were they fascinated by our exotic lifestyles? <laughs> the, th- the, th- the three of us here on the podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like well, Rob or myself or Adam. Were they? Were did they want to find out from you about how crazy we were or how audacious we were? Were they amazed at us? Oh no, I. I didn't, you know, nobody really asked me any questions. I just kind of st- <laughs> okay. stood in the background. I tried to avoid most of the conversation, if you know what uh, I mean. I thought we might have been a little bit too edgy for them. <laughs> yeah, possibly so. <laughs> possibly <Yeah>. so. <laughs> well, as uh, I announced earlier, this is episode 99, and... We are coming up on episode 100 here pretty soon. Dr. Future, you will be with us for that as well, which we're really looking forward to. We have, we're going to have an all-star cast, both in the studio here and then also over Skype as well. That's right. I'm not at all nervous. Yeah. (laughs) Rob's Rob's like shaking in his boots. Yeah. (laughs) Will there be an Argon energy generator there? There might be. There might be. (laughs) With with the furry costumes. Some get some Orgone going. Orgone, sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well guys, thank you so much for for listening and thank you to Rob and to Luke and also to you, Doctor Future, for coming on the show. Yeah, man. And uh it's been a it's been really awesome. This will be the last show in the double digits. We're going yeah. to, we're going into the triple. I feel so. like after all that, like all I have to do is just pollute the show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the corruption. Well, my purpose was to make the real guest sound smart in comparison. So I was the dumb person in the in the rafters, you know, the village idiot here. Oh, so. yeah. I don't well, think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's not that's not true. <laughs> Well, it'll be exciting, the one zero zero. You know, a lot of the people in the NSA and elsewhere have, have told me they never thought you'd get to it. They thought that oh, their yeah. work would be able to shut it down before then. Yeah, the, the, the Mossad and the FBI and the CIA. So the rebel force has won one over the Sith <laughs> Federation. I don't know. This, unless, we get, unless we get droned here in the next like couple of minutes, I mean, we may yeah. not get to episode 100. I hate when that happens. <laughs> Yeah, us too. (laughs) Uh, Usually I'm the one that does the droning on around here. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dr. Future, for coming on. And uh, guys, thanks for listening again. And we will be back next week with episode 100 on Conspiranormal. Sing a hymn for the dead because in death
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.